faithwire.com. NBC accused of being a propaganda arm for China after some surprising posts and commentary about a Muslim Uyghur athlete being selected to carry the torch during the opening ceremony. Today's Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm Dan Andros. We'll have that top story and more on today's 4 and 3 podcast from CBN's Faithwire. You can find us on iTunes. Go ahead and subscribe over there. Give a rating. Click all the buttons. Leave a comment. All that other fun stuff. We're here every day. We'd love to have you with us. With me, as always, Trey Gones Phillips, Billy Hallowell, also from CBN's Faithwire. What's going on, fellas? We made it. It felt like it feels like just yesterday, guys, you were saying it's Monday. We're almost to the weekend. And now <laughs> here we are. It's actually Friday. Yeah. And we are and we are living the dream as always. I'm very I'm very excited for the weekend. Yeah. I told you all, didn't I, that as soon as Monday starts, it seems like I snap my fingers and it's Friday. There so. you go. Here yeah, we are. It's Friday. The, new, the news will do that to you. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, I'm going to be talking about. Uh, Sathya Sam, he's a porn recovery coach. I just talked with him earlier this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about his personal story and how he's helping other men fight against pornography addiction. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, important topic. And we're also going to be talking about John Stewart. Uh, he has a lot of feelings about Joe Rogan and the whole Spotify spat. So we'll dive into that. Yeah, interesting stuff from uh, John Stewart. I find myself agreeing with him. I mean, even though I think we're probably pretty different in politics, but. He's saying a lot of things that make uh, sense these days, so I'm looking forward to that one as well. But we are going to start in China, where uh, the Olympic Games have kicked off today. And, um, well, there's a lot of criticism flying around right now of NBC because first they tweeted after China. This is what they tweeted when China chose um, a cross-country skier and uh, who is a member of the Uyghur minority community. And, of course, the West and the United States and others have criticized China for rounding up and hauling the Uyghurs into concentration camps. So, uh, obviously, that's getting uh, some criticism here. But here's NBC's tweet. They said, China chooses Uyghur athlete to deliver final Olympic flame at opening ceremony after nations condemn country's record against Muslim minority. And so it was kind of like this. uh, The way it was pictured, it looked kind of grandiose if you look at the actual picture on the tweet. Um, The Olympics Twitter account. They uh, also tweeted it just like with all these emojis and just wrote stronger together with the hashtag. (laughs) Not sure if the Uyghurs feel like that one is, uh, you know, uh, making a whole lot of sense. But here's the clip that's getting uh, a lot of criticism uh, primarily. And this one is from the NBC team as they were covering the opening ceremony and watching these Uyghur athletes carry out uh, and, and hold the Olympic flame there. Here's Savannah Guthrie. Check it out. Like this moment uh, is quite provocative. It's a statement from the Chinese President Xi Jinping to choose an athlete from the Uyghur minority. It is an in-your-face response to those Western nations, including the U.S., who have called this Chinese treatment of that group genocide and diplomatically boycotted these games. There will be much discussion about this. So calling it an in-your-face response is what has really got uh, the tweets getting ratioed there uh, online. And so um, here's a write-up from Deadline that was describing sort of how the uh, opening ceremonies went. They said it officially started off with a solemn countdown video linking the Beijing Games and the recently launched Lunar Year Festival. And it was a tone of spring rebirth propaganda and imperial heritage. And they said that was firmly established and said, 
While there were a few moments of beauty and grace, the privileged post given the goose-stepping People's Liberation Army early on in the opening ceremony said it all. Uh, so you have those sorts of things that we've seen from China before, military parades, that sort of stuff. It had a lot of that in it. NBC's coverage, they had Bloomberg's Andy Brown and a Yale professor um, who were supposed to be providing on like political context to it. So you know you're kind of in a controversial country here when... You, for a sporting event, you've got to bring on um, some some political analysts here to talk about it as well. Uh, conservative commentator Matt Walsh said, watching all of this, said, China unleashed a virus on the world that killed 5 million people and then invited all the other countries over to play some games. And they're all like, sure, sounds fun. The word weakness does not even begin to describe this. So uh, I think you're seeing a lot of that play out right now, guys, um, that people are kind of scratching their heads is, okay, we, we know about all these human rights abuses that are happening. We know about the controversy and the way China lied about the virus, and we still don't really know the exact origin, although the bat, um, you know, the zoonic theory has sort of been questioned heavily. Lab leak theory has gained new credibility, though not confirmed. And so you have all that, and then we know China lied about it, going going uh or in the early days of the pandemic so you have all of that happening and it just seems odd that people are willing to just look past that and play some games as as matt said so why does it matter well i mean when you look at a country that's done what it's done for them to be rewarded with the financial windfall that comes within olympics uh, it just seems uh it's a head scratcher to a lot of people and you're seeing that criticism play out online today well, yeah, what would have sent the best message? The best message would have been sent in saying, you know what, we are no longer allowing you to do this. We understand it was decided years ago, whenever they decided it, uh, the International Olympic Committee, uh, we're going to take a stand. But it seems like nobody is willing to do that because if you pick up any item in your house and you look under it, it says yeah. made in China. This is a financial decision. The world for years has made the decision, including America, that cheap goods and services are more important than human rights. Mm -hmm. And finally... People are waking up to that. As far as the NBC thing, gosh, I mean, as journalists, you would think, and as producers, they would say to themselves, this exact moment, the reason it's being created is to make it look as though there's positivity happening here, to make it yeah. look as though there's progress being made. And normally I'd say we can't read into people's hearts, but the reality of the situation on the ground tells us what is happening there. And so you would think people would be more astute than to just buy into that madness. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I want to be charitable to Savannah Guthrie because she's doing live yeah. TV. It's the Olympics, so it it it's hard when you're reporting in the moment um, to make sure that all of your words are always exactly as they should be. But I completely sympathize with the criticism that NBC and Savannah have faced because there's a history of this, right? It's not like this was a one-off. Like yeah. Savannah was the first and only person in the mainstream media to say something that seemingly sided with China. I mean, you have to remember that all of this is happening amid what year two, three of COVID. Uh, and for the first two years, literally, CNN took China's word for it when they said they've eliminated COVID. And they've only had, I think if you look up on Google, it'll still say that COVID cases in China have never topped more than like 86,000. Uh, and the mainstream media just takes China's word for it because why would China lie about the number of COVID cases they had uh, when COVID started in Wuhan? So look, I, I think there's a history of the media being being friendly um, and not really that intellectually curious about China. So this is just like another like 
oh yeah, there's, you know, the media is, is not really um, portraying a, a more holistic perspective yeah. uh, when it comes to China. So I, that, that I think is why Savannah is taking heat, not just because she made the one singular comment she made, but yeah. because if you look at the picture as a whole, the media has been pretty friendly to China. Yeah. And, uh, and look, and NBC, like, and look, Savannah, I mean, is she like super excited and like trying to promote, you know, Chinese, you know, communist propaganda? Probably not, but, Right. Um, but at the same time, is she under a lot of pressure to not criticize? Is she, you know, trying to balance it and just did a bad job? You know, is she trying to be a journalist and sort of describe the situation and like from their point of view, but doing a bad job, not realizing how it sound? But NBC News, guys, has a history of falling for the propaganda. Uh, do you guys remember when Lester Holt went to North Korea and uh, he was he was reporting from this ski lodge? And he's like looking around going, oh, this, it seems bustling out here. And it's just, I mean, look at this, all this activity and, and it seems great. And, um, you know, it was widely known that that was a ghost town and they just brought all these people in and made them, made them go around like they were doing something there. Like, you know, and, um, uh, you know, he called it a rare look inside of North Korea and it was obviously just, you know, propaganda. They'd staged it all and he. And I don't know if he was just like, all right, I need to report this. But anyway, this isn't the first time that NBC, you know, has done something like like this before, falling for the propaganda. So, um, well, I do I do want to add too that there was another host, Mike Tarico. Yes, um, I know he opened the shows apparently, and I did not see this, but he did open the shows by addressing the COVID issue in China, and then actually going into the Uyghur Muslim issue, explaining why the United States government was not there. Um, so that is interesting, and I did not realize that yeah. as we're sitting here. I'm, I'm noticing that that's a headline that's kind of hitting now. So it does seem like they found – They're aware. Right. They're aware, but I still think you know, the, the decision, what they did there with having that Uyghur Muslim you know, do that, the, that is very – it's a very symbolic moment, right? So China knows what they're doing. That's where the real issue is, and I do yeah. think in that moment it would have been appropriate to again say it. You yeah. Know? Well, right? and like so. look, I mean like that's not – Let's not beat around the bush here. NBC is profiting off of this if anyone yes. ends up watching it. So they're profiting off of this. So, I mean, it's it looks it's doubly worse if you're not harsh on this stuff. And so I hope, yeah. you know, and Mike Tirico is great. I mean, he's a sports guy. I'm sure the last thing he wants is has to deal with, you know, for, for his you know reputation is having to deal with balancing all. How do we cover this horrible country? Um, because he's a great sports guy and, and he does a great job on all the mm -hmm. different sports that he covers. So, uh, unfortunate for him. I mean, you know, Savannah is in politics on a day to day basis. So, um, you kind of expect her to be a little more adept at navigating that sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, just being there in the first place seems like the problem, you know, like, why are you even there? A hundred percent. They should have, they should have boycotted as well, but nobody, this is all about profit. And I think it is one of the grossest examples of that, that we've seen this again and again. And I think the convicting part for all of us is it's easy to say, we're going to go buy American, you know, but the reality is the cost of things is 20 times higher, yeah. you know, whatever it is. <laughs> right. yeah. And so we all just, we don't even pick up the item at the store to look under it to see because we're, but I do think the tides are changing on some of that. This is the first time it seems like there's a real snowball's effect of frustration building around China. Yeah, yeah. And it's bipartisan, too, which is yes. a good... No, nothing these days is bipartisan, but the fact that this is, is good news, I think. Um, so, all right, story number two. So 
I want to start with with this fact. So according to um, Pornhub, which is the largest uh, pornography website uh, in the world, uh, in December of last year, so December 2021, they said that they were trafficking 130 million visitors to their site every single day. So there's there's no escaping the reality. Pornography is endemic, and it's only become more viral, I think, in in the age of COVID-19, we're talking about pandemics and epidemics that look, porn is a huge epidemic uh, that's you know undeniable at this point. So we spoke with Sathya Sam. He's a Christian author and a porn recovery coach uh, about the a systematic process that he's helped to develop uh, for men who want to fight their own pornography addictions. Uh, and this was what was very interesting to me, and I think will be really interesting to our listeners. Uh, he said that he's seen a common thread woven through the stories of just about every man that he's helped. He said there is a demonic component to pornography consumption. He said the reality is when you engage in something as toxic as pornography, you're almost literally dancing with the devil. You're really engaging with something demonic and giving Satan a foothold. Uh, that's what he told us. Uh, and he said that a lot of people will end up relapsing uh, because they have not built the spiritual maturity that they need to actually sustain the breakthrough. He said people will uh, avoid pornography for a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. He said but a lot of times they'll relapse. Uh, and he said when I talk to men later about their relapse, as a Christian, he said, who's dealt with his own pornography addiction, by the way, he said, I can look and identify a lot of that is because you didn't build the spiritual foundation necessary to replace your poor view of a relationship or your poor view of yourself or intimacy or sexuality. So because you just pulled out a bad habit, but you didn't replace it with a good habit. Uh, eventually, a lot of times the bad habit will end up, uh, you know, reclaiming the space that it had uh, in your life. Uh, so this is a little bit about Sathya's story. Uh, he just wrote a new book called The Last Relapse, Realize Your Potential, Reclaim Intimacy, and Resolve the Root Issues of Porn Addiction. And he talks about his personal journey with porn uh, in the book. Uh, so he came from a long line of pastors. He grew up in a, a wholesome Christian family, and he even attended private Christian school. Uh, but because as we know, porn is is pervasive. It is everywhere. Uh, he was in his computer lab at his private Christian school at just 11 years old when he was first exposed to pornography. Uh, you know, for a moment there, because he was young, uh, it just went to the back of his mind and it wasn't something that he entertained for a little bit. But as he started to become more curious about sexuality and about the opposite sex going into puberty, uh, he said pornography reared its ugly head once again. Um, and he said in high school, his pornography consumption was a regular habit, but by college it had become a full-blown addiction where he was scheduling his days around watching pornography. Uh, he said at the, at the time, porn was the only way he knew how to cope with the pressures of life. He was at school on a scholarship. He was working part-time to help pay for it. Uh, and all of his hours were accounted for, most of it with responsibilities. He didn't have much of a social life because of all the things he was doing. Uh, so the only release and relief that he had in his life at the time was pornography. Uh, but this is what I thought, guys, was really interesting. Like I said, he grew up in a Christian home, came from a long line of pastors, and even later in life ended up serving uh, for 10 years himself as a pastor. But he said it was during his college years when he was surrounded by intellectual atheism and agnosticism. He said most of the people he was hanging around with, the professors he had, were not believers uh, and were highly critical of Christianity. 
But he said that's where he encountered Jesus for himself. Uh, he said that's when he was he became keenly aware that he had a problem with pornography and he had to eliminate it from his life if he wanted to take, take his faith seriously. He said that's when I realized I really had a problem. I think up until then I told myself I can kick this thing when I want. I'll stop when I need to. When I get married, I'll fix it. All of those lies we tell ourselves that are totally false. That's when I realized I needed to get some help. Uh, he said the problem of uh, or the yeah the problem of pornography took him five years to eliminate. Uh, but he said, I made up in my mind in that season that when I figure this thing out, I will do everything in my power to help as many other guys get free as well. So I was free for about two and a half years before I felt a release from the Lord to step out and start Deep Clean, which is what he calls his ministry to help other men beat pornography. So uh, we're going to have a story uh, up on faithwire.com that's just an explainer about his story and also just answering several questions uh, that he walked through with us, like how do I start fighting porn addiction? Uh, and what do I do if I relapse and I fall back into pornography? What is a healthy view of intimacy? Is it completely sexual or are there other components to intimacy and having intimate relationships with others? And he, he talked about having an intimate relationship with God helps you to have a more holistic view of intimacy. Because I think in our day and age, we conflate intimacy with sexuality. And he said, you know, being intimate with somebody is having, a, you know, a really robust relationship and truly knowing somebody. He talked about knowing his wife is about more than just sexually. He said, I know my wife. I know what she believes. I know what she thinks. Uh, I know what God thinks about her. He said, th those things are what make up a healthy view of intimacy and ultimately a healthy view of sexual intimacy. So uh, it's a, a wide-ranging interview. We'll have that up on CBN News' YouTube, but also uh, the story on faithwire.com. So uh, it's, it's just a great story. And I think why it matters is uh, this is a guy who dealt with pornography and has been, uh, you know, redeemed by Christ and has recovered and has built a system to help other people beat it. And he's seeing other people, other men be successful in beating pornography. And we've talked about this issue so much on the podcast, uh, but I think it's important to highlight these success stories because it shows uh, us everyday people, readers, uh, listeners, that it is possible um, to beat pornography, even in an age where it's become such a per pervasive issue. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great interview, Trey. And um, he's an engaging guy. And just hearing his story and too, I mean, talking about first being exposed to pornography in a computer lab at the age of 11, yeah. uh, back in the early 2000s. And, and that was before I, what I found interesting there was, you know, he was saying that that happened, you know, 2000, I think one or two ish, something like yeah, that. 2001. Yeah. And so obviously cell phones weren't as prevalent then and like certainly not a smartphone. It had all the apps. The apps weren't a thing yet. And so he's still exposed to pornography at age 11. You got to imagine that that age is probably even earlier now for, yeah. for the average when, when kids like, you know, see or expose like, you know, these spam emails that constantly come, um, accidentally searching something, whatever the case may be. I mean, I, so I'd imagine, I mean, I think we all know that the problem is getting worse with technology. Yeah, I think the average age is still 10 or 11, but that's the average, right? So, you you know, there's right. a lot lower than that coming in. And and like an 11-year-old, you just think, I, mean, I have a 9-year-old. Their brains are so undeveloped. They're so young. And the damage that we're inflicting as a society and as a culture, it's and it's amazing too, just as a side note on this, because this is an issue that carries with it a lot of shame. And a lot of people, mm. because mm -hmm. of the shame, including pastors, the the statistics on pastors and people leading churches watching porn are horrific. 
And, you know, we've talked about this with pastors before, being there, supporting pastors, making sure that we're remembering that they're people too. The shame for both pastors and congregants is huge, and it prevents people from being honest. And so I love that he's being honest about his story and being vulnerable because that's the first step, admitting you have a problem to fixing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to mention too, one of the things that I thought was so powerful and convicting that he told us is, uh, he said, I'm often asked, why is pornography such a prevalent issue within churches? Why are so many pastors dealing with not only their congregants struggling with pornography, but like you alluded to, Billy, themselves struggling with pornography? He said, pastors are called to shepherd their flock. And he said, and out in the field, there is uh, a space, there's a pasture that's sexual purity and he said the sad reality is, is that a pastor, a shepherd, can't lead his flock to a pasture he's never been to. Mm. Um, he said we need to start uh, helping pastors get free from pornography if we want our congregations to be free of pornography. Because he said we can't do one without the other. They have to be done together. Yeah, mm. no, that's huge. Well... That's a hard, that is a hard story to top because it's a really important one. But this, this last one has to do with John Stewart. And you know, it's interesting. A lot of these comedians on the left, Bill Maher, John Stewart, they're starting to say things that are grabbing the attention of people on the right. And so John Stewart is essentially saying that the reaction to Joe Rogan and Spotify and the removal of music and podcasts by certain artists is overblown and quote, a mistake. And he said, rather than, you know, censor or cancel people, he'd like to see people engage with their ideological opponents. And so it's an interesting bit that was on his uh, podcast recently. It actually aired on Thursday. And he said, look, quote, we all exist in this world and on this planet. And there's no question that there's egregious information that's purposeful and hateful and that being moderated is a credit to the platforms that run them. But then he said, but this overreaction to Rogan, I think, is a mistake. And he went through sort of the whole Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, all these other people who are threatening. Every time you turn around, there's somebody you haven't heard from in 30 years pulling their music off of the app. And it's interesting. You know, Rogan's got a $100 million deal, right? So this is a huge deal that Spotify signed with him in 2020. And, you know, the, the part of this argument that I thought was the most interesting and kind of the why it matters for Jon Stewart is that he talked about Fox News. Now, obviously, he is not a fan of Fox News. He, he believes that Fox lies, and he went on a little <laughs> mini tirade yeah. about that. Um, but the example he gave was actually really interesting because Fox is on every cable provider, right? So if you're somebody who believes that Fox News lies, right, if, if that's what you believe, like he does, His point is, well, then if we're going to follow the Spotify example, you'd have to remove if you have a show on any other network on cable because Fox is included in that package, you would have to abandon your show. You'd have to quit. You'd have to leave. Mm -hmm. And how ridiculous that is if this is the new gold standard. Um, So so his point and I think this is something that really everybody should be able to agree with. He said, don't leave. Don't abandon don't censor, engage. And that was a blanket statement, he said, not just with the Rogan thing, it was with everyone. But he made another point about Rogan that I want to highlight here. He said, look, Rogan is not somebody who is this ideologue. He's somebody who you could sit down and talk to. He's having four-hour conversations, right? So um, I I found the whole thing interesting. The why it matters, though, is that in a time when everyone is being told to cancel, you have a situation where somebody like Jon Stewart, somebody who's on the left, is saying, look, let's engage. Yeah, I think it's a great message. And, uh, you know, 
I, I think I was, I can't remember if I said this on the pod or not before, but I feel like comedy is one of these areas that can help stop the divisiveness that we have because we're always going to have difference politically. We're always going to see different ways to get to, you know, similar end results. I mean, people want our lives to be better. They want the country to be more prosperous, all these things. We want people to be treated equally. I think we can all agree on that stuff. It's how do we get there? What's the best sort of, you know, policies and the best, you know, cultural things that we can focus on that would get us there. And, uh, and so I think with him promoting this message of engage, I think it's, it's a very good message. And I think it's the one that will help bridge that gap. But I think comedy plays a role in that because if you have people like Stewart out there, if they're willing to, you know, really attack this idea of overt, you know, political hackery, not just on one side, like don't just criticize the right when they do it because both sides do it. We all know this. Uh, you know, a little mockery could give people some pause before they uh, dive into, you know, talking points. Look, I just want to know what world we're in when I agree with John Stewart and Bill Maher yeah. about it's yeah. the upside down. You're inside the upside. I down. mean, well, but people, yeah, and, and I think but, people are. Yeah, I think they're just getting. I think they're starting to see the folly of what he was saying, which is why you, you don't de-platform someone just because you don't like what they're saying. He's like, it's not a good. He's like, it doesn't sit well with me. And I think I think more people are realizing that. Yeah. yeah. And this conversation about the media and biases and all that has been going on in the public mm-hmm. since 2015, right? When Trump, like that was when the conversation became this big conversation yeah. that we have to have, even though everybody knew that media bias has long predated 2015. But that was when we started to acknowledge its existence. Um, and look, Abigail Schreier, she's, we've talked about her before. She's the author of a book uh, talking about the transgender craze. Uh, of, of really young kids and the dangers that could be associated, uh, particularly with young girls. Um, she tweeted, when none of the legacy media would review my book and Amazon blocked my publisher from sponsoring ads, Joe Rogan had me on a show. I will always be grateful. Uh, and I thought that is why Joe Rogan is successful. And all of these years later, the CNNs of the world still have no idea what she's saying. Uh, but in, the reality is instead of pretending that other perspectives just don't exist, which is what so many in the mainstream media do. It's just they'll pretend that there's no other side to the debate. Instead of doing that, Joe Rogan has them on his show for three hours or four hours, yeah. whatever. So that's why he's successful, because he's giving a voice to the fact that at least half of the country feels this way. Why not have a conversation about it? And if the mainstream media would start doing that, maybe they wouldn't feel so threatened by Joe Rogan's Spotify podcast. Yeah. 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 Well, and, you know, he says he's going to maybe balance that out by having the other side on after, which, I mean, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe people can benefit from that. I, you know, I don't know, but um, yeah, this is, this is just, it's crazy town. And I would just add that when you have one side saying, oh no, 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 the other side is, you know, giving us plenty of misinformation and they need to be stopped. Well, there's people out there saying there's 57 genders, right? And that's not a reality, but yet it's being treated as though it is. And I think that, you know, and and then anybody who says anything different to your point, Trey, they're not even welcome to have their perspective that, be heard. That's the problem. Yeah. That That is the problem, right? Like you, the, this reaction to, to immediately try to cancel somebody and say they're bigoted, like, like that's why I have a problem with like the Southern Poverty Law Center with their definition of hate speech. I mean, they put like the the FRC in there, the Family Research Council, you know, just a Christian organization and um, things like that. That to me is more dangerous than any view you could throw out there. Uh, This 
I mean, especially, I mean, Jen Psaki said it the other day. I mean, she was questioned on this, you know, because uh, the, the big news was that the Biden administration had a successful drone strike, I believe, in Syria, but they killed a top ISIS commander. Well, then reports started coming out that uh, a bunch of kids were killed in this drone strike. And so they then they denied that and said, well, no, there was he blew up a suicide bomb and then they all blew up. And so um, Saki was asked about this and she immediately was saying, oh, what, you don't believe, you know, the the you don't believe the reports that are coming out and sort of character attack this person for not just immediately believing the United States government and the State Department. And which is really shocking, considering it was not long ago during the Afghanistan pullout that um, the Biden administration tried, got word of a possible suicide bomber coming and they, they do a drone strike and completely get the wrong target and kill a bunch of innocents. And then they lied about it. So there's fresh history of the government lying to us about a drone strike. And so the, the press is actually doing their job and questioning her. And then they immediately lean, and this is where the dangerous part is, they immediately lean on you know, an appeal to authority. Oh, you're just going to question, you don't believe the government? Oh, because it's like what they're doing with COVID in the CDC. You're going right. to go against the CDC? I mean, think of the danger of that m mindset of my of making the government the end-all, be-all. And if you disagree with them, somehow you're the misinformation. Then you're setting it up. This is a nice scheme by the government. No one can ever question the government. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the goal, right? And you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center knows that when they give their definition and they put it out there that when an organization is listed on that, they are going to be cited by mainstream media. This is one of the main reasons that bias happens. It, it goes by who you cite yeah. in your reports. And yeah. there's plenty of studies showing that the media tend to cite more progressive and liberal right. groups. I in pull it a fact with the fact checking. I yes. mean, that is a liberal yeah. leaning uh, outlet. And so are a lot of yeah. the fact checkers, but they're the official fact checkers. So it's like this nice little loop that they've got going where the media Cites these progressives that back it that back up. And they can Hollywood they, makes shows about it, and yeah. then universities turns your kids out. <laughs> right, with it. so you're basically so, doomed. Yeah, they yeah. filter it through this progressive wash cycle that sort of makes leftist <laughs> views the standard, and uh, anything else that disagrees with them is going to get you in trouble. Well, and there's this knee jerk reaction to whenever like one or two people on Twitter says that this person is awful and, and is <laughs> right. fringe and crazy and needs to be canceled. Make a headline the is like, oh my gosh, they probably are. They probably are crazy. We do <laughs> need to cancel them. Uh, because the, the reality is like, back to Joe Rogan for a second, he's not really like this crazy fringe guy. I mean, he had Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical officer, he had or a chief medical correspondent. He had him on the, his show for like three hours and they talked about COVID and all the, you know, everything that, you know, go, goes with that. Yeah. And it, like, it was a completely reasoned and normal interview, but because of the, the backlash that he's gotten because of his COVID comments, whatever, we have to now pigeonhole him. He's a completely crazy French person. It's like, that's not really the case. He's not a yeah. crazy French person. And even if he was, you know, he can right, say whatever just, he wants let, to, let I guess. Talk. The answer to Bill, you say this a lot on social media, but the answer to speech you don't like is not deleting that speech it's combating it it's combating it with more speech right. let's the, have yep. the conversation yep. we've lost that ability to where these people are just looking to bully and intimidate and you know push opposing views into submission and uh it's it's not a good path to go down as every authoritarian regime in history has showed that how that ends up so i mean we definitely <laughs> 
We definitely well, don't want to end there. And, uh, you know, well, I, I want to just add something to that because just really quickly before we go, you know, the, the, there's another dynamic here that I think gets overlooked. When you start to cancel somebody or push them out, it creates a vacuum for that person. You know, Donald Trump's a great example of this. They've moved, removed him from basically all social media. Right. And he's out there putting statements out. Nobody really sees them except for the big fans and media when they're looking. And so you end up isolated in this strange place. And I actually have a theory that it helps some people. You know, if you're trying to get rid of, if you're concerned that Donald Trump has terrible rhetoric and you never want him to be elected again, You've canceled him and nobody's seeing anything he's saying now. So when he right. comes back to run again, you've given him a fresh slate, essentially, which is really it's kind of an interesting element of this of this debate. And I don't think that's been looked at enough. The actual yeah. impact like Joe Rogan might come out of this way more powerful than he ever was. Oh, I'm sure he will. And and to your point about Trump, it's interesting because if if only the people that really are Trump fans really and really want to see what he's saying. Now you've removed any incentive that he like if you really think he's this unhinged character who says dangerous things well do you really believe that because now you've put him in a place where no one's monitoring what he's saying and not right. that i agree with that but like he now he's free to say whatever with no consequences at all and so i yep. guess you're okay if you think he's so dangerous i guess you're just okay with that um, it's a blank slate essentially yeah. in yeah. the minds of most so, yeah, yeah exactly so all right well uh, that is all the time we have for today and we're going to leave you on that happy note that uh the world's gone and to, well, you know what, in a handbasket, and they're trying to uh, silence all the opposing speech. Happy Friday, everybody. <laughs> Have a great weekend. <laughs> Have a great weekend. No, but seriously, God, God's still on the throne. He's still in control. We're Christians. We still believe that. And so we can, we can look at all this craziness, analyze it and everything else, and still have hope at the end of the day. So, all right, God bless. We'll see you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend.